2: this is rigor host of then is now podcast and welcome to the cult movie lounge where we discuss all cult films all the time joining me is my co-host writer and award-winning blogger Robert Minnell. so glad you could be doing this uh, with me Robert how how you been
3: good uh, nice to be here
2: awesome. thank you Awesome. So, folks, we did a sneak preview episode prior to this, so hopefully you've had a chance to check that out. It's got some good responses from listeners. And now we're really going to get into the nitty-gritty of cult movies. And on this episode, our topic is, well, why don't we let Al Pacino tell you exactly what our topic is?
3: Sergio Cabucci. Hey, who and who's that?
0: The second best director of spaghetti westerns in the whole wide world.
2: That's right. We are going to discuss the career of legendary Italian film director Sergio Corbucci. That was a clip of Al Pacino from Quentin Tarantino's film Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Now, um, Robert's going to go over a lot about Corbucci, um, and I just want to mention that the films we're going to discuss today are Goliath and the Vampires from 1961, Moving Target, a.k.a. Death on the Run, from 1967, Django from 1966, The Great Silence from 1968, and The Mercenary, also from 1968. So, uh, Robert, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about Sergio Corbucci and in, in his career?
3: Uh, yes. Now, this is, a, everybody not, may not be familiar with the name Sergio Corbucci. Uh, he was an Italian director who lived from 1926 to 1990 he died at the age of 63 uh, he made 63 films interestingly enough in that period wow. that's so, so that's a lot he, he made his first film in 1952 he, i'm sorry 1950 and his last film in uh uh 1990 the year he died or 1989 or 90 so basically he made 63 films in a 40-year period which is pretty good that's more than a, a film a year you know and uh He made all different types of films. Uh, He was uh, known as the other Sergio, the other Sergio being Sergio Leone, who directed the famous Clint Eastwood Spaghetti Westerns, which made Clint Eastwood into an international star after he had been a television movie actor. Okay. And this is where it gets complicated.
2: (laughs) And he started off with the um with Sword and Sandal movies, which are, aren't those also known? Is it Peplum or Peplum films?
3: Pe- Peplum films. Okay. They're Peplum films. And once again, I have to go back to Sergio Leone. He was a friend of Sergio Corbucci, who was born around the same time, and they both died the same, run you know, 1989, 1990 period. And they were friends, and they worked on films together before they became famous individually. And they worked on, Uh, Peplums in the early 60s. And one of the ones they worked on, or 1959, I'm sorry, they worked on The Last Days of Pompeii. Uh, They were both Um, assistant directors to an older Italian director who became ill, and they kind of took over as uncredited directors, and that was made with Steve Reeves, who had just had a success with Hercules. He played Hercules in the Italian-made Hercules from the late 50s. And he later appeared in The Last Days of Pompeii, which you may remember it it was shown on television a lot during the nineteen sixties and seventies. Yes. It was about the Pompeii explosion and there's like a melodramatic plot about intrigue in the in the the court of the evil emperor, you know, that type of thing. Right. It's a pretty it's a pretty well made film. Sergio Carbucci and Leone were worked on a script and when the director got ill they they actually directed certain scenes of it, and it was being filmed in in Spain. And Corbucci said to Leone, he said, you know, a really good western could be made here in Spain because they were looking at the landscape they were working in, and it's very it's very similar to the look of the Old West in the southwestern United States. It's, like, uh, very hot and very dry, lots of deserts, palm trees, things like that. It had very similar... Uh, environment, a very similar, uh, meteor, meteorological, uh, plane. It had a very similar landscape. And Leone said, right. And they, after that, they both worked on another, were working on film scripts. And in 1964, Sergio Corbucci made his first Western. And it was called the gunfight at Casa Grande. And Sergio Leone made his first Western. And it was called a fistful of dollars. And, right. Uh, the Corbucci film was not a big success. The Leone film was a huge success. It launched the career of Clint Eastwood, who was like a grade B movie and television actor for Rawhide, who suddenly became a huge star worldwide because of these Italian westerns that Sergio Leone made. In Spain, mostly, they were filmed on location in Spain with interiors in Italy. Uh, now, Corbucci also made another film after that called uh, Minnesota... Minnesota, Minnesota Clay, Minnesota Clay, yep. and um, I, I keep getting that mixed up. I was going to say Minnesota Slim, <laughs> <laughs> Minnesota Clay. Okay, and a very good film with Cameron Mitchell, kind of a, a tale of an old gunfighter. Pretty good movie. Not as good as Fistful of Dollars. Not as commercial. So they they both started out making Italian westerns in 1964, and Leone would have three huge hits with. Fistful of Dollars for a few dollars more. The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly were all huge hits in the 1960s. And Corbucci made a few hit Italian westerns, which we'll talk about. And uh, Leone's career decelerated after that. He made uh, another western, uh, Duck, You Sucker, Once Upon a Time in America, which didn't do as well. Once Upon a Time in the West, which was many people thought was his masterpiece, didn't do that well in the U.S., really, but it's a great film.
2: Oh, yeah, I love that movie.
3: Yeah, and it, but it lasts like three hours and it's very slow paced. Yeah, but it's a great it's a it's a great movie. Okay, it's it's not really in a lot of action, but it's a great movie, and and so we're talking about Once Upon a Time now. Now we're going to flip over a little bit. We're going to talk a, just a little bit about Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which came out in twenty nineteen. Right. Okay. Great. Now the thing about that movie is that many people noticed that it had a lot of clip a lot of clips from cult movies in it. Italian cult movies, which we talked about last week or the last podcast a bit. It had clip from had clips from a Sergio Corbucci film in it, uh, Death on the Run or Moving Target as it's sometimes called. A spy film with Ty Harden had a clip from that in it. And the main character in Once Upon a Time in America uh, Rick Dalton was playing a washed-up kind of Western actor from, from a TV show in the late 50s and early 60s called in the Tarantino film Bounty Law, okay? Right. And he was ha- he was having a hard time getting work after that in the late 60s in Hollywood as a, as, as a shows in a film. And he had a Cliff Booth played by Brad Pitt, was his double, stunt double. And they were having a hard time making a living because Westerns were kind of going out of style then. You know? yep. And it, they were big in the early and mid '60s. But this uh, bounty bounty law was supposedly in the film. Tarantino, a lot of people think, based it on a, a a show, a TV show, Hollywood, Billman Hollywood, but done in 1958 to 1962. There's 63 episodes, and it was called. There's 68 episodes. I'm sorry. It was called Bronco. It was about a Bronco kind of cowboy, Bronco buster, rodeo kind of cowboy who wandered around the West. It starred Ty Harden. Right. Who went to Italy in the mid-60s and appeared in Sergio Corbucci's film, which we're going to be talking about later, uh, Death on the Run or Moving Target. And he had a career very similar to the main character in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. In that he was a star of these western in the late fifties, early sixties. Appeared in a lot of shows. He wasn't. A, he didn't make him a superstar. He was like a TV star, which was different. He appeared like in some other movies, like PT One Hundred and Nine about John F. Kennedy's adventures during World War II. He, he appeared in several other low-budget or high-budget American but well-known films, but he wasn't paid very much. He was having a hard time making a living. He went to Italy and he appeared in westerns and uh one of the westerns was based on a Sergio Corbucci western Minnesota clay it's called a different name in the film and it's, another director is identified as doing it but it was based on Minnesota clay and he also appeared as we said in this moving um target on the run so so Ty Harden's over there and he's having a similar career as the main character in once upon a time in America He's, he's over there because he can't find work in the United States. So he appears in these cheap Italian westerns, spy films, and other films. And he came back to the U.S. in late 69 when the movie takes place and was, started to appear in American uh, television movies, American television shows. He went back and made a few Italian westerns. And then he kind of disappeared from acting. And uh, he died in 2017. He was on Facebook, by the way, Ty Hart. And I was, he was a Facebook friend. He had very outspoken political beliefs, <laughs> and uh, as I could tell, he would post mainly about those, but he seemed like he was a kind of a nice guy. He was, and he was like 87, I think, when he died. He wasn't a big movie star, but he was well-known for appearing in all these cult movies, including some of the stuff that we're going to be talking about. And I think Tarantino must have picked up on that. Uh, that He was basing this these characters on people who actually existed, not only Sharon Tate in the Manson killers but he was also posting it he was also basing it on these characters who were acting in westerns and low budget TV shows in the late 50s and early 60s and so a lot of people think that the character played by Leonardo DiCaprio a lot of critics are finally pointing out that hey that's what this film was based on it's based on this uh, this character it's based on this old western show which everyone forgot and that's where the characters, that's where these characters the main characters come from and of course, they were played by actors people know nowadays and were very popular, like Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt. Okay, right. that's, that said, at the same time, uh, going back to the early 60s, uh, these peplums, restoring sandal Sandalphones were very popular. And so Corbucci, who had been making up to this point uh, kind of melodramas, he made musicals, he made comedies, he made a few comedies with his Italian comedian, very popular comedian named Toto, okay? <laughs> uh, uh, you know, well, I've, I've seen some of his movies. They're not my type of humor. They're not very funny. They're kind of very corny type humor, you know? <laughs> he, he, Kobuchi made some musicals, and it's the kind of music that I don't really... I've watched bits of them. It's the kind of music I don't really get in, into. It's more like... They're more like family films, okay? Yeah. They're kind of very very corny for, for you know, like the general... Italian movie going public who like paid very low admission prices, like 10 cents in America money to see these films back in the 1950s. But he made this film. He made a few Peplums. One was Steve Reeves. Okay. Uh, uh, another one was Steve Reeves called, uh, called uh, Son of Spartacus. A lot of action, very well-made film. Made in 1961, I believe. And then he made, uh, he made another one with Gordon Scott okay, and that's called Romulus and Remus, okay, Romulo e Remo, it was kind of like a, not really a big hit, but they changed the title in America, but Gordon Scott was one of these muscle men, American muscle men, who worked out a lot, and went to Italy to appear in these sword and sandal films.
2: And he was and, in like six six uh, Tarzan movies, where he played Tarzan. Right.
3: Yeah, none of which I've ever seen, <laughs> <laughs> but he, he was he was more of a star than these other people were talking about, he was a, he was a kind of a TV star and he went to Italy to appear in these sword and sandal films where he played like McKiste or Samson or Goliath yeah. uh, and, and Goliath and the Vampires was directed by Sergio Carbucci. It was sec- it was, it was his third, I think, uh, sword and sandal film.
0: take your shape and in your likeness I will destroy my enemies into waters abounding with vicious killers of the deep goes Goliath <laughs> men die by the cruelest of execution <laughs> a beautiful woman is the devil's own temptress exploiting the young and innocent <laughs>
3: The original title was Maciste versus the Vampires. Maciste was a, an Italian hero, but no one in America knew who Maciste was, so they changed his name in the dubbing to Goliath. Right. Okay. And Gordon Scott was this really built-up guy. He was probably just as built-up as Steve Reeves, but he wasn't as well known. He had huge muscles. He was supposedly a heavy, heavy drinker. He got he got the Apparently, he got, he got his license revoked when he was in Italy for drunken driving. Oh, so he, he was a real party when he was over there. They had a lot of parties among the American actors who were over there. And he had, so he had some difficult problems later in his career where he kind of couldn't get movie roles at all when he came back to America. And he was trying to find any type of job. I mean, he tried to get a, a job as an actor in The Godfather Part Two and Francis Coppola rejected him and said, no, he's not right for the role. So he couldn't get jobs wow. in mainstream... He couldn't get he he looked like he looked like a he could play that type of gangs gangster role but he couldn't even get a job in mainstream films and he ended up um he ended up you know he was having a real hard time he lived with family members he lived with some of his uh fans at some point and he, he had a real kind of tough life later in his career um steve reeves is more successful he had a horse farm but maquiste el Contro el vampiro or goliath And the vampires, he played like a Goliath, who's like this muscle man, and his his town is invaded by barbarians. And he later finds out that his family was killed. The head barbarian is not a human. He's really this kind of vampire, okay? And uh, he's uh, he kidnaps all these people, and he's he's using their blood to like create an army of vampires or zombies who can't be killed, okay? Because he wants to take over the world. So he's using human blood to take over their bodies and injecting it to them and he uses mind control of this vampire. He's going to take over the world with these vampires or zombies or whatever you want to call them and Gordon, Gordon Scott Goliath comes in and destroys his plans. But before he destroys the villain, the vampire he, the vampire creates himself and Gordon Scott's Goliath's double. So at the end it's gordon scott fighting himself okay right (laughs) because the vampire disguises him himself as goliath so it's goliath versus goliath one's the vampire and one's the good guy okay yeah but it's a it's a pretty neat film it's it's very well it's very well made it's very fast-paced a lot of action uh it's got like vampires it's got zombies in it the color photography is real interesting it reminds me of kind of like mario bava who made these very stylish colorful horror films it's kind of photographed like that. If you've ever seen any of those,
2: yeah, like uh Hercules in the haunted cave. That's a good yes. film.
3: Yeah, yeah, Hercules in the haunted world. I believe is haunted called. world. That's right. Yeah. It, it's got it's got lots, lots of different titles, though. That, that that might actually be one of the <laughs> one of the titles in Europe. You know, yeah, the haunted world. And Christopher Lee plays like a vampire in that. Who's the evil vampire king? And he takes over people's minds, and he's drinking blood and getting the blood from you know, um, Hercules' wife making her into a zombie and using the blood to create an army of zombies. So it's the same plot, only it was directed by Mario Bob, and it was done in the same year as that, and they're both very good films, although this one is not as well known.
1: Uh, But it's
3: very similar to that. I would recommend uh, Hercules in the Haunted World or Hercules uh, versus the Vampire. It's out on Blu-ray now, and there's three different versions of the film on the Blu-ray with three different titles, it has a commentary by Tim Lucas, who explains in detail, which I can't really go into, about you know the differences. But it's a very good Blu-ray to get. I think you can get it like for ten dollars or twelve dollars.
2: Oh, I'll say. have to check that out. So, it's and Goliath it's re- and the Vampires?
3: No, no, no. That's um, the the Mario Baba.
2: Oh, it. oh, oh! Hercules in the Haunted World. Okay.
3: But right. but it's not, it's got like three different titles, three different versions. Now, Goliath and the Vampires that was supposed to come out on a DVD, uh, but it didn't work out. It might be out on a very cheap DVD somewhere. So I saw it online in a very high-definition version with subtitles, and it was kind of worth watching. Hopefully, that would come out on Blu-ray someday, you know? Right. But that's right. a very interesting right. film. <clears throat> that was Sergio Corbucci's film, and it's very stylishly directed. It showed that like, he was as talented as doing... He could do horror films. He could He could do a horror sword and sandal film like that was The showed him as he was as good as directors like mario bob and some of these other well-known guys and uh, then after he made that uh, he went into other types of films as we're going to discuss
2: nice and i just wanted to mention too that gordon scott was also not only did he play tarzan in quite a few films he was also in the movie danger death ray which was right. directed by Gianfranco Baldinello.
3: Right, and that's a very good film too. I actually have that. On, that's on. You can watch that on YouTube. Very high definition, very nice version. I have it on. on oh, I have it on old VHS. You know, it's a, it's a very fun film. Yeah, yeah. And he made after he, after he appeared, Gordon Scott in these uh, in the, in these peplums or sword and sandal films, and he also made some westerns. That he made one called Buffalo Bill, Hero of the West or Far West. We played Buffalo Bill. Yeah. And they're kind of old-fashioned westerns, but made in Italy. He, he then he made a series of sword, I'm sorry, of, of spy films in Europe, and then his career just ended, like in 1966 or 67, with I think I think Danger, Death Ray, or uh, Top Secret. I think was another one. There and then he couldn't get any more acting jobs for the rest of his life, basically. Right. He became, I guess, he became like a kind of an alcoholic. He was having health problems. And he lived into his 80s, though, you know, but he had a very tough life. After he fell out of the movie world, sometimes it's very hard to get back in, you know? And he couldn't get back into it.
2: Right, right. And that seems to happen to a, a lot of these people, especially in, like, the 60s and 70s, where they almost get typecast. And then right. they, even though they can act, they can't get the jobs.
3: Right. And that's what's happening in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Al Pacino, who's, who's Rick Dalton's, Leonardo DiCaprio's agent, tells him, Well, you're getting typecast as the villain here, you know? Now you're appearing in all these television shows, like the FBI as the villain who gets killed at the end, okay? And he basically tells them, you're not going to have any future in a few years, you know? Because you're just going to be in... People are going to remember you as a... From this old cowboy show who played villains and then just disappeared. Because, you know, the the major studios or no one's going to want to hire you, you're going to be washed up. And he gets really upset, the character Rick Dalton. And then he... That's what spurs him to go to italy to make these films
2: right right that's awesome so let's move on to moving target also known as death on the run which i watched this a, a quite a while ago i think you, you and i first started talking about doing the show a couple of years ago right. and i watched it then but i really enjoyed that movie it's a, that's right. i think that one i found on youtube as well right.
3: And that movie stars Ty Hardin, yep. American actor, as we said, who had this, who also had this, uh, Western show called Bronco, and ran from the late fifties to the early sixties, four years. He made a regular living at that. Then had a hard time getting work in America, so he went to, he went to Italy, and he made films with Sergio Corbucci and other Italian directors. Now this one by Corbucci, uh, Death on the Run, he plays like a a criminal. He plays like a thief, a kind of a petty thief who's in Athens. And what he does is he like steals jewelry, like steals paintings, art. He's like he's kind of like Cary Grant, and it takes it takes a thief, you know. Oh, okay, okay. yeah, yeah, uh, uh, Only he's a good guy, but he's a thief. But he's also a kind of good guy. He's just trying to make a living. Although Cary Grant had a lot of money in that film, and he he stole expensive stuff. This guy's kind of stole steals cheap stuff and yeah. he's just making it. Is just making a living. Nonetheless, he gets arrested. They're going to put him in. Gi- they're going to put him in jail, and he uh, is transported to Athens on his way to being put in jail back in the U.S. And he escapes from custody, and he spends the rest of the movie running away from the uh, from the Greek authorities, from Interpol who are after him, yep. and and from these secret agents from the Soviet Union, one of whom is played by Michael Rennie. Very yep. famous actor, you know, who was in the alien and the day the earth stood still. People yep. remember him from that. And I think that was one of his last films because he was over in Italy and Spain too. He moved over there. He was, he couldn't get any work in Hollywood either at that time. Right. Believe it or not.
2: I always once remember again, him from um he was in a two part episode of Lost in Space called The Keeper. That was always one right. of my favorites.
3: Yeah, I heard about that. I haven't s I like to see that. I'm a kind of a big fan of Michael Rennie. Yeah. He was a good he was a good actor. And once again after he fell out of feature films in Hollywood, he just appeared like it on TV, like yep. a, like a Star Trek, right? Yep. And, and remembers. Uh,
2: was it Star Trek? I can't remember now. Uh, was
3: it Star Trek he was appearing in? Okay. Well,
2: like I said, it was Lost in Space was the one that I okay. remembered him from.
3: Okay, okay, the Lost in Space. Okay, that was a hit show. Star Trek wasn't really a hit show. I don't know if he was on that, but a lot of, a lot of these actors were talking about and appeared, appeared at shows like. Star Trek, okay, when they couldn't get jobs in the motion picture industry in the 1960s anymore, they would go to shows like Star Trek, they would go to shows like Lost in Space, or they would go to um, other TV shows where they could get regular work at.
2: Right. I mean, I also remember him from Demetrius and the Gladiators with uh, Victor Mature in that.
3: Yeah, yes. And I remember seeing, I saw that in a movie theater when I was a kid. Yeah. he, He would play all these dignified roles. But once again, when he got to a certain age, he couldn't get hired anymore for big pictures in the U.S. by Hollywood. So he started appearing in TV shows like Lost in Space. And, um, and by the late 60s, he was over there and making films with Sergio Carbucci, okay? another European, he appeared in a Paul Nashe film where he played an alien, uh a Simon Terry. Simon yeah right, which I've got on Blu-ray now. On, I think nice. that, was, that might have been his last film. And then he just didn't get any work whatsoever. And he just kind of disappeared. I guess he retired and died a few years later. But in any case, that that's the running theme here. These actors not be able to find any work and ending up making Italian films, as in Once Upon a Time in America. I'm, I'm sorry, Hollywood. And as in uh, uh, the real life of these stars we're talking about. Right. Now, so he appears in this as a secret agent for Russia and Ty Harden is the main character is running. He's trying to, he's trying to get him to go to Russia to defect. The police are getting, trying to get him to go to jail for all the robberies he's committed around Europe. And it all takes place in Athens. There's a lot of photography, like of the Coliseum and all the, you know, all the interesting, you know, famous scenery and tourist attractions there. Okay. Oh yeah. Yeah. And uh, I mean, it's not really a great film, but you know, it, it, you could tell it wasn't that expensive. It was kind of like a very low budget Italian film. But it's an interesting film. It holds your attention. And it's not like it's, it's kind of like one of the inexpensive, cheap James Bond imitations they were making during the mid 60s. Right,
2: right. And, and that's what's cool because, you know, that's one of the things you and I have talked about that we're going to definitely dive into is a lot of those Euro spy films from the right. 60s and 70s. Right.
3: Right, and we'll be doing some shows on those. We'll probably just be talking like about one or two films on one of those shows. So this is more... Here we're talking about Sergio Corbucci who had a career where he did all these films. So it's that's why it's so complicated, his story, okay? Right. He had a very complicated career. But yeah, so he, made, he makes this film and then what Quentin Tarantino does in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, he uses a clip from this film and then intercuts... You know, Leonardo DiCaprio, so he appears as the main character instead of Ty Harden in the film, okay? There's a car chase where you see Ty Harden trying to escape these agents who are behind him in another car. And what they did was they superimposed Leonardo DiCaprio over him. So it looks like he's in the film. But it's actually a Sergio Garbucci film, okay? I and, love that.
2: Uh, that was such a great scene, too.
3: Yeah, and it's, it, it, a lot of people who saw that film, once About Time in Hollywood?, might not even realize it's that that's a film by Sergio Carbucci the same guy who made Django which we're going to be talking about other famous violent westerns but that was just one of the films he worked on it made some money I don't think it was a big hit here and and, and and so yeah I mean it's it's on YouTube under the title I believe moving target I mean you can watch it it's it's fun it's a good way to Waste 90 minutes. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> I think on IMDb it's listed as Death on the Run. It took me a little bit to find it, but um, I always, I, I forgot Ty Harden was also in uh, Berserk with Joan Crawford.
3: Right. He was also in that. Yeah. And I think that was, um, I think that was the late 60s. I don't even, I've never seen that film. I don't know if you that one. Yeah, that was one of Joan Crawford's last films. Right. Because after that she, she I, th- I think Trag was her last film, but uh, she went into, like she was on television, she was on Night Gallery, the one directed by Steven Spielberg, which got good reviews. Yep. I think that was one of her last roles. I've seen a few Night Galleries on my antenna TV now, since <laughs> I quit cable. i antenna TV, and they, they're showing Night Galleries all the time. And that that was a fantastic series. Oh yeah, that was that was as good as the Twilight Zone. Only was a little bit. Only they only was they had more money and it was they had more time to tell the stories. Which I think that was one of her last roles. But Berserk was a few years before that. So, yeah, he's he's in that. He came back to America. He, he he did that film. He did some other big films. Went back to Italy in the early 70s and then like I said just he went into other things and just had a very sporadic career after that.
2: Right, right. But, but
3: he he's good in this film, Tie Hard, and he a lot of these films when American actors would go over there. They'd have other people dub them, but he dubbed his own voice in that film cuz these films in Italy were largely made without any sound They would just have the people saying like one, two, three, four, five, and then dub it all later because you could film a lot faster that way, you know. Right, right. In Italy, Italy, they don't do it in the same perfectionist care as they did in Hollywood. You know, they just did like one or two takes and then move on. They they would like do a film like in a week, you know.
2: Yeah. Oh yeah. It's it's interesting the whole dynamic how that worked back then and uh I just looked it up real quick so Berserk was 67 and that was her last movie. I'm sorry, right. Trog was her last movie as right. you, as you said. Um but after that she was on the Tim Conway comedy hour and Joe right. Crawford was also in The Sixth Sense, but not the um not the uh, M Night Shyamalan version. It was from 1972.
3: Right, right. Okay. Yes. Yeah, she she didn't have much of, she didn't have a she didn't, she no longer had a Hollywood career. She had a, a television career okay yeah and, and unless you want to say Hollywood you know 70s television I guess was also produced in Hollywood <laughs> that's right. how St- that's how Spielberg Steven Spielberg started out by Duel which was a Hollywood film which yeah is, a lot of people think is his best film still and he also directed Joan Crawford in an episode of Night Gallery right which had got, got very good reviews I've never seen that one by the way I'm still waiting for that one to come on my antenna yeah TV but but that's supposed to be a very good, one of the best episodes of Rod Serling's Night Gallery.
2: Right. Hey, you know what's not to get too far on a tangent, but I liked the Night Gallery one with Roddy McDowell. I just remember enjoying him in that one as a kid. He kept calling this guy Porter Boy. He's like, "Hey, Porter Boy, come over here," you know?
3: <laughs> okay. Right. You know, he might. He was. In, he, was he was in so. M- he's had. He's in so many movies, so many televisions. That I lose track. I, I think he was probably in more than one Night Gallery too.
2: He may have been. Yeah, that's true.
3: I mean he was a so I mean he was in like the Planet of the Apes he was I mean, he was in he was in everything.
2: Oh yeah. Oh my god, uh, he was in so and, many and
3: He and he made movie, he was made he was appearing in movies as a kid back in the 30s and 40s.
2: Yeah, yeah. And we just talked about him over on then. as now we're doing a series this year in October for vampire movies and we talked about Fright Night which he yeah. was so good in that movie and even rewatching it this time there's a a couple of scenes that He's just acting with his face, and he's just so amazing.
3: Right? Yeah, he was a really, he was a really talented guy. He also directed a few films, and I, I think he made like a few European cult movies, which, which, if I can find, maybe we'll talk about them in yeah. the future. I remember seeing a horror film; I can't remember more. We'll talk about him in the future, though. Yeah, he's he was a very talented guy. He did a lot of different things.
2: Yeah, he, I remember he was in a Hammer film called It, which was yes. very good.
3: Another film I haven't seen. Okay, yeah, oh, but, yeah, yeah but he he definitely had a European career also. As some of these people, I think he was a little more successful because people knew who he was. He was in like the Poseidon Adventure.
2: Yeah,
3: even after he appeared in these European films and television, he would go back and be in big films. Okay, and
2: he did a lot of voiceover work. He too, like he did the um, the Mad Hatter and Batman the Animated Series from the nineties. Oh,
3: Really, that's interesting. No, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah,
2: yeah. He did a lot. He had that distinct voice, you know.
3: Yes, yeah. That's the thing. I mean, the really good actors, like, I, I was thinking, I was just watching a Peter Cushing movie. He had, he had such a wonderful voice, you know. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I, not only did he look, did he have? A, he was a classical actor, but he had that wonderful ringing voice, you know. Yeah. I, I mean, I mean, I mean, he was in Star Wars. You know what I mean? Right. Peter Cushing. <laughs> he was the villain in Star Wars. You know. Oh my so God. He, that's when, and, and that's when, in the late 70s, European actors started to come here to appear in our films, and that's why So Peter Cushing came to the United States and ma- made a few films in the U.S.
2: Right, right. Uh, before we move on to the next film, I just wanted to jump back to something you said earlier because I think it's important for the listeners to understand it wasn't too long ago, you know, you, you talked about how movies are made in Hollywood, but TV shows are also made in Hollywood, but it wasn't too long ago that people who were in film Kind of looked down on television. They were very snobbish. Like, oh, yes. I would never work in television. You know,
3: right, right, yeah, exactly. Well, it's interesting. And once upon a time in Hollywood, the main character Leonardo DiCaprio says to Brad he says, "He goes, I don't want to go over and make a Tang Westerns. She said, they're, "They're, they're, they're cheap. They're shit. They're, they're, they're ridiculous." He doesn't want to do it because they were thought of as like television. They were thought of as, as just cheap. You know what I mean? It's stupid. Right. And that's the way he is. And then then he realizes he doesn't have any choice you know what i mean he's gonna he's he's gonna lose his house you know what i mean he's gonna lose everything so he has to go over there and that that lets him hang on for a few more years you know but at the end of the film he's he probably doesn't have much of a future you know what i mean right <laughs> and, so i'll oh, go ahead but, but but that's that's how it plays out and that i mean i'm i'm not a huge big fan of quentin tarantino i i didn't like his previous film what is it? The hateful eight? Because it's, it's just people sitting around talking for like three hours. You know, <laughs> you know? And, and and that's not what I go to a movie to see. I want to see action. I want to see something interesting. I don't want to see people talking in their, you know, they're. <laughs> it's just a very vulgar film, I thought. Um, uh, but 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 I I did kind of like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood for that reason because it you know it, it talked about films and specifically it was obsessed with cult films and people who were involved in cult films and how they got there and how the films were made there. And you know what their, what their ultimate fate was, you know, which wasn't very good. I mean, they didn't get killed by the Manson group, but, they still, a lot of these people ended up being unemployed,
2: you know? Right. And that's what I was going to ask you, and I I suppose we're getting into spoiler territory. So, folks, if you haven't watched Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, pause this show right now and go watch it and come back. Because I wanted to ask you, Robert, about the ending of that movie, which I understood it. It didn't confuse me, but I know a lot of people who didn't understand it because it's basically all of a sudden the timeline changes and it diverts because... The Manson family don't end up killing Sharon Tate in that universe.
3: Right. Is that universe? Right. Yeah. Well, that was, I guess, what they wanted to do (laughs) to um, I mean, I didn't know what they were going to do. Um, I just wanted to see it because, you know, uh, I had heard it had cult movie stuff in it. And I I knew some background about it. I I didn't know how it ended, though. And so, yeah, uh, that was just so, you know, that was just a, you know, I guess a way to give it like a happy ending, you know, the once upon a time ending, the happy ending okay and okay that makes sense yeah I, I guess they wanted to give it all a happy ending you know and um you know otherwise it, that, what are you going to do you can't make the movie if you don't otherwise it's going to be like you know they made all these other manson movies i you know uh, don't have happy endings and i don't think anybody wanted to see another charles manson movie you know what i mean right uh, right so this was just, this is the, the what i liked about it and once again i don't want to give quentin tarantino too much praise because i think he's got a big head to a certain extent <laughs> is that is that he's he knows his cult movies okay he really does oh
1: he's yeah, a cult,
3: yeah. He, I, I think he's a cult movie historian he knows them. he incorporates them into his films he shows them at his theater out in hollywood the, yep. new, beverly. the new beverly that's great yeah. I, w- I wish I, I wish i lived out there i'd be i'd be a regular customer there you know <laughs> yeah i, I mean so I, he shows a lot of interesting Foreign films and cult movies out there. He shows them in 35 millimeter, which I think is great you know and And what's
2: what's really cool is he bought um him and his his writing partner roger avery used to work at a video store back when they were like in their early 20s and when the video store went out of business he purchased it so now what the two of them do they have a podcast and they'll take like two or three vhs tapes on on vhs and watch them and then discuss the films on their podcast and it's really fascinating
3: right and i think that's good i mean and Good. Good for him. Good on him. I'm glad that he's doing it. I think that's a healthy thing to do because it's a way of getting people into these cult films by people who know what they're talking about. And they both do know what they're talking about and who love the films and getting people and you know to listen to them in an entertaining podcast. I mean, that's what we're trying to do here. Yeah, OK. Exactly. I mean, I'm not Quentin Tarantino, but, you know, I, 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 I've been into these films I've collected these films. I, I know I worked at the video store too, you know, I worked in a the movie theater. I've worked in the adult movie theater once, you know what I mean? Oh, wow. <laughs> I worked, I, I could, we'll do a show about that sometime, you know, maybe, but you know, I, I could tell you that I've worked in all aspects of movies. I've, I've you know, I've written film scripts. I've done short films. I've done all kinds of things. The thing I like most about movies is just sitting there and watching them and talking about them and writing about them. I have, I have blogs about them. I've written about them in books and magazines you know, I, I, you know, making movies is a whole different thing. He makes movies, and he knows about them, and he also shows them on the theater, and he talks about them on a podcast, and he writes film criticism, and that's great. That's great. I'm good for him. I'm glad he's doing it. That. I'm just saying that, that one film I really didn't like, and some of his other films I didn't really like. But, hey, I can't like every film that everybody makes, you know what I mean? Exactly, exactly. You know, I, and I just, I, oh, go ahead. I, I did like Pulp Fiction original Pulp Fiction. I like this most recent one. And I hope he keeps doing that. I hope, I mean, I hope I want to listen to this podcast of his. Yeah. I I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet.
2: It's really good. And uh, just one last thing I wanted to say about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is that, as you mentioned, it is chock full from beginning to end of all kinds of pop culture reference, in particular cult movie references. Right. And the one that stood out to me Um, For this show was that I think uh, Sharon Tate when she goes to the movie theater towards the end of the film there's a poster for the Mercenary up on the wall which we're going to be talking about in a little while
3: right (laughs) and and that's that I understand that's a Tarantino favorite Um, not my favorite Carbucci film okay yeah it's it's very kind of uh, I can see why he wanted to make it because it has it's a really it's kind of upbeat it's kind of like a comedy western you know what I mean yeah which which and and as we're going to talk about his later career you just completely got all in the comedies in the last 10 or 20 years of his life, you know, but yeah, uh, yeah, that's definitely a cult movie. Okay. And, and that, that movie, I think, I think that played the mercenary in the late sixties played as the drive-in here. It didn't even play in a, a movie theater. Whereas in Los Angeles, that movie would play in a movie theater where right. I live, I, I live in a small town in central New York. We, we didn't get those. We got those type of movies like Italian Westerns and, uh, short and sandal and italian horror films they play the drive-ins
2: yes yeah yeah absolutely
3: that's where, that's where i saw them at the drive-ins you know yeah and that's right that's where i got into them so you know i got and then i got into collecting videos i still have a few i just got a new vcr because i still have video vhs videos um that i watch films on i have dvds i have blu-rays I can't afford to have a hundred thousand dollar collection of Blu-rays because <laughs> everything's coming out on Blu ray. They're constantly got but I, I buy I buy one every once in a while, you know when I can afford. You know.
2: Yeah. I still have laser discs. I have a whole stack of laser discs.
3: Right. And, that, and that, what happened? That that whole thing was like a, a bomb. It bombed out.
2: Yeah, and it's too bad because I used to rent them from a Laserdisc store. That that was all they rented out was Laserdiscs. And, you know, you my, my unit, you could go in and, I mean, you had to get up and flip the disc <laughs> halfway through the movie.
3: Right. And uh, I never got something. To, I remember back in the 1990s when Laserdiscs were out and people were buying them. I remember thinking, you know, I really don't want to get into this because I have a feeling that it's not going to last, you know? I yeah. had a feeling... It was going to disappear so what I did I, I kept buying D I kept buying videos or renting them or sometimes I get them from a, a gray market or but get them at you know like a, a borders with or, or a, you know media Play or something like that all these places which are out of business and then when the DVDs came out DVD came out like in the late 90s I started to buy DVDs and then the DVDs really killed the laser disc.
2: Yeah, yeah, and part of it was because they were so big and clunky, and it took a while for them to come out with the DVDs, as I understand it, and I I could be wrong if someone wants to write in and tell me, or if you want to tell me, but my understanding was that they were doing it with the red laser that you would use on a CD, but because a movie takes up so much more information, the discs had to be huge and had to be double-sided, and once they perfected what was called the blue laser, they were then able to create... More manageable size discs in the form of DVDs is is that what right. you heard?
3: And, yeah, and that's and that's where the DVD is. A DVD is uh, uh, well, a Blu-ray is really the blue disc now, okay? Because they they use a blue they use a Blu-ray instead of the red one. The Blu-ray. And What a Blu-ray is is it's like a high definition uh, DVD, okay? Yeah. It's a, it's, a, it's a DVD which has a higher definition, usually is sharper picture, better colors and usually there's more space on it so you can have, like, commentaries or, like, you know, posters right. and everything else. Or, like, I mean, I, I also do... I also work for several film companies like Mondo Macabro and um, occasionally Severn Films, Mondo Macabro, two of the best film DVD, Blu-ray companies out there. They, they they do mostly Blu-rays now. And once in a while, I do audio commentaries for them. I've done some... Um, I've, I've done... I just did a recent... Audio commentary on a Jess Franco film, you know, and nice. uh, I've, I've I've done other commentaries on Spanish horror films, Italian horror films, different films, and it, th- that's nice. But you couldn't do that type of thing on a VHS or video, or you couldn't do. Uh, although on the laser disc, I guess that's where the cult commentary thing started. Yes, But what yeah. it is, the DVD is a shrunk down laser disc, and the Blu-ray is a high definition DVD.
2: Right, right. Okay. So let's move on to the next film, Django from nineteen sixty-six.
0: A century ago, on the low hills along the border between the southern states and turbulent Mexico, a mystery man appeared—a man with a sad, impenetrable face. He's been alone. Django. Django. Was that man? What was his secret? It's not important. And if I bothered you, will you accept my apology? He was pitiless in revenge, quick to decide, and a master of every weapon. A man everybody would like to have seen dead. Yeah, his name is Django. Django. The title of a film you'll never forget. Django. How many men you got left? Your tongue-tied? Or don't want to tell me?
1: <laughs>
0: Too bad, Maria. Django. An audacious man of action capable of a tender, hopeless love which could only last a day, but a day which was worth all eternity. It, oh. I'm glad I made you feel like a real woman. No, you've lost it, oh. Very glad. But you've lost it, I mean. Forever. Django. A new, ruthless, violent film, featuring a great new star, Franco Nero, and a great supporting
1: cast.
2: I just wanted to quickly mention about uh, Corbucci's spaghetti westerns. You know, most of his spaghetti westerns were pretty bloody and violent, which is great. Yes. But he also did some of the um, the bloodless Bud Spencer and Terrence Hill movies too. And I, we've talked about a lot of those over on the East Meets the West. I, I love uh, Terrence Hill and Bud Spencer.
3: Right. They made a series of now, there's a story behind that. They made a series of comedy westerns. Okay. Yeah. And. and I've seen one or two of them they were pretty good but they weren't really my cup of tea okay but some people love us they made a lot of them okay like there's there's one called my name is nobody okay?
2: yes yeah we covered which, that
3: which, one. which is very good which is serious which is has comedy in it it has so it has a lot of action in it and um and um ernesto gastaldi Ta- italian screenwriter who's been around for a long time as a facebook friend and a real life friend of mine he wrote the script for that he wanted to write he told me and other people that he wanted to write like a, a kind of a serious you know uh, uh, film with those guys with, with comedy in it and with uh, Terrence Hill in it whose yeah. real name I think is Mario something or other um, he, he's a, you know and Henry Fonda of course is in it playing a character a very kind of old time western hero you know yeah, very. Good, th- that's a very good film I would recommend that My Name Is Nobody he wrote the script for it very well written very well-directed film by Tonina Valery, who was an assistant director to uh, Sergio Leone. And um, very well, in fact, I reviewed that film back in the 1970s when it played at the drive-in in a local uh, weekly newspaper. And I said, this was a, I say, this is a great film for you people who remember the old Italian Westerns. Because that was in 1973 when I saw it. And By that time, the Italian Westerns were going out of business, you know done.
2: Yeah, that's one thing we learned on the show on East Meets the West is that um, they started to deconstruct the genre pretty quickly after it became a thing, you know?
3: Right. And that film does deconstruct the genre, but it's pretty good. And I think they made and I think they made too many of the comedy westerns. Now, the comedy westerns, I, I went to Europe. My first trip to Europe was in 1973. Okay? Mm-hmm. Boy, those, those Terrence Hill films are all over Paris. Okay? Big, gigantic posters, you see. They were in all the movie theaters in Paris. I was in Paris. I was in Nice. I was in Belgium and Brussels. Those films were huge over there. They they have gigantic posters, like huge, huge, like city block style posters. You know what I mean? Like you know, like maybe like you know, 50 feet by 25 feet over the over the marquee. You know, and you know, Terrence Hill and Bud Spencer. You know, my, yeah. Playing uh, what were those characters they played? I can't remember. You know, they, they you know, and they would have a comedy drawing up there. People were going to see those all over the place when I was in Europe. They were like, every day you see like a line outside the theater.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that's they amazing. Were, they,
3: they were huge successes in Europe, even more than the United States.
2: And they're so huge. I just, um, probably a year or two ago, I downloaded a little game for my phone called um, Slaps and Beans. And it's based. It's basically uh, Terrence Hill and Bud Spencer. And it's like they, whoever made the game, licensed their likenesses and made the game about them.
3: Yeah. <laughs> That's great, and Bud Spencer he was he, he was a good he was a good dramatic. I've, I've saw a few, there's a few spaghetti westerns I have where he plays dramatic roles, and he's pretty good as a dramatic actor too. You know, so yeah. he could also do drama, and he's also in a Dario Argento film. Um, which, he's very good. I can't remember the name. Oh, well, yeah, Four Four Flies on Grey Velvet. But he's oh, he's yeah. a very he's a very good actor. He appeared in serious spaghetti westerns, comedy yeah. westerns. All kinds of interesting stuff. I've been and trying I've to
2: get, but uh, Terrence Hill on um, on uh, The East Meets the West, but our schedules keep crossing because he does a show w- in Italy where he plays a, um, a priest that solves crimes.
3: Oh, that'd be great. How, yeah. how old is he now? He must be in his eighties, seventies.
2: No, yeah, I'd have to look that up. Off the top of my head, I don't know. I think he's yeah, probably in his seventies at least.
3: Right. Yeah, because he's yeah. No, Bud Spencer died a few years ago, so he's gone. Right. Okay. Yeah, he's gone. Uh, but. That'd be great if we got him. Great to... If we ever got him on, I would like to be on that show because...
2: <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> tell me
3: about... I, I, I have a bunch of questions I'd like to ask him, especially about that one film, My Name is Nobody. I think that's one of the best Spaghetti Westerns outside of the Corbucci ones and the Leone films. Right, right. And that was... that was, And I said in the review, I said, years ago, I said, this is kind of the last Spaghetti Western. And I, I think that was the last Spaghetti Western I saw in a movie theater, too. You know? hmm. It was at a drive. And... and uh, but at that time, I really didn't know who Sergio Corbucci was back in the seventies. You know, right, right. And um, and uh, Django never showed here. Oh, it didn't. Into Django now, now this is an interesting story. Let me just tell you a little bit about Django. Um, well, ja- Django, Django did show here actually, but it did, it didn't. Django and the Great Silence. The Great Silence which is really, I think, a masterpiece and probably Corbucci's best film by far. That did not show here. Huh. Okay. Daryl F. Zanuck, Hollywood producer, head of 20th Century Fox, was... 20th Century Fox bought that film and was going to distribute it internationally. Daryl F. Zanuck was the head of 20th Century Fox. When he saw that film, it was so violent and the ending was so upsetting and he didn't like the political aspect of the film. It so disturbed him that he said, this film is never going to be released in America. So he made sure that film was not released in America, that his studio, it was not released theatrically in America. Um, this was, and this I'm talking about the great, great film, never released in America. It wasn't released in the UK, was banned over there for violence and it was released in a lot of third world countries other countries where it did very well. Django did very well in um, third world countries cause it showed like this hero killing the villains who were kind of like racist villains you know what i mean who we're killing yeah. yeah. And, and corbucci's films are always on the side of the the kind of the peasants or the exploited and the good guys are like the you know the kind of the um the uh, white anglo-saxon protestant kind of corrupt businessmen you know so and, and both in django and in the great silence which we're going to talk about and uh, but that film received i believe a very limited if you know theatrical showing in the u.s if it was even released here at all and it was very violent
2: oh yeah django set a new uh a new level of violence for these right I, I
3: mean i mean hundreds of people are killing that film you know yeah and um and i um, mean uh, what's uh, franco nero has a mach- machine gun we, we're just machine gunning people <laughs> <that would not laughs> i mean it's uh, you know and, and you can wa- you can watch it as like a Kid or the kid and laugh at it, but I mean, I don't even know if that kind of film could be be made nowadays. You know, right? It was was very violent, very mark, very grotesque, macabre. They're cutting people's ears off. They're cutting people. They're cutting people's fingers off. They're cutting. You know, they're torturing people in very bloody ways. And so, yeah, Daryl Abzanek, though, who produced the longest, a very famous Hollywood producer, wouldn't let this film be released in the United States. He was very influential in Hollywood since the 1940s and 30s. Like, he produced, like, um, you know, John Ford's and Grapes of Wrath and things like that. Right. A very, very respected producer. He was He was still in charge of 20th Century Fox. He was old, older, very conservative guy. He said, we're not going to release this film in the United States. He said, this is too violent. We're not going to release it.
2: Now, that's interesting that you said that, because, um, well, Django came out in 97, but prior to our show tonight, our recording, I went and looked at my computer, because I do... Uh, um, on Facebook, I have a page where I have uh, I post TV guide scans and newspaper movie ads that well, I, well, well, I research.
3: Just one thing. We're, talk- we're talking about The, the Great Silence. Oh, going- oh,
2: okay. Because Yeah, because I have a listing for Django um, from a theater called The Tropical, which I'm not sure. It's The Valley Morning Star is the newspaper, so I'm not sure where that was located. But okay, so Great Silence was never... Yeah, that makes sense because I... The
3: Great Silence yeah. was not released in the U.S. We're going to talk about that some more. And... Um, Daryl F. Zanuck saw the film, was horrified by the film, and would not release it here in the U.S. Right. because his company was 20th Century Fox,
1: and it was not released in
3: other countries too. It was banned and not released there for reasons of violence. Okay, now Django was a year be- was two years before that, 1966. Um, that received a limited release, I believe. But didn't do very well in the U.S. It wasn't a big hit like it was. It was a huge hit around the world, but not in the U.S. Right now, where where did you see this ad? Was you said it was in nineteen sixty seven? It's
2: uh, sixty nine. Hold on, let me click on it again here. It's from nineteen. It's from a newspaper called the um, the Valley Morning Star. So I'm not a hundred percent sure where that is. I'd have to do a little research on that. Um, but yeah, it's just it's just listed as playing at a movie theater called the Tropical.
3: Okay. It it's probably it sounds like it might be in California. Okay,
2: it's played with uh "Wanted, Johnny." Texas is the first film. It's a double bill. <laughs> it says not recommended for children.
3: <laughs> okay, so, so it's showing us, it's showing as it's showing us the bottom half of a double bill several years after it was ma- released. Yeah,
2: two years at least. Okay. Yeah.
3: Okay, so it was made in '66. Played all over the world it was a big hit. So you're seeing an ad from three years later, and it's a double, bottom half a double bill. I don't think it, I don't think it received a wide. Release in '66 or '67, right when it was new, and I, if it did, I don't think it did very well, as your as this ad indicates. But you no, know, but the, the great silence, Carbucci's masterpiece, which I really can't wait to talk about, was not released in the U.S. because it was hated by Daryl zanuck and also Clint Eastwood bought the rights to it because he wanted to do a remake of it, a less violent remake of it. Okay, that's another backstory, okay? A lot of hmm. people don't know that. And he did try to make a remake of it like in well, the 70s, which we'll talk about, okay? And so so that was another thing. It wasn't released in the U... And we're talking once again about The Great Silence, okay?
1: Right.
3: Um, it wasn't released in the U.S. General Zanuck wouldn't release it. Plinyford bought the rights to it. Tried to remake it as an unsuc- one, of, one of his lesser successful films. So Django, yeah, apparently got some play dates as you just noted it did not do well in the u.s it was a huge hit like in third world countries okay yeah and uh corbucci was became was famous it was got got good reviews um but not in the u.s right
2: right yeah it's interesting how how those things kind of work you know but yeah it's it's django is just there's so many things to love about that movie i really really love django i mean you know, opens with Franco Nero dragging around this coffin, and for most of the film you're like, why is he dragging this coffin around with him? Right,
3: (laughs) right, and then you find out why he's dragging the coffin around, right? Right, because it's got, like, a machine gun in it, he's going to kill people, okay? (laughs) And and, and that's what's great about the film, it has all these, uh, has all these cool surprises in it, you know?
2: And, you know, that's one thing I noticed about Franco Nero in some of his later Spaghetti Westerns, is he loves his machine guns. Yes. You know?
3: (laughs) Right, and also you got to remember Franco Franco Nero speaks speaks English. Okay, he he taught himself he taught himself English. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to give you a backstory about how Django was made. Okay, so they got Django, they got this film script. Okay, by Sergio Corbucci and several other people, and then they said this guy Franco Nero was in a few films he appeared in. Not a big star in Italy, but he was well known, but not a big not a big international star. Um, he, he 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 learned English at that point, so he could appear in Camelot. Okay, the movie, the hit movie Camelot. Yep. Okay, in the U.S. Now, uh, what year was that? 19, did that come out? Sixty-six or sixty-seven?
2: Some somewhere in there, yeah.
3: Okay, he learned English so he could appear in this movie in the U.S. Where he played um, Sir Lancelot, I believe, and, and uh,
2: with Richard Harris, right?
3: With Richard Harris, yep. Vanessa Redgrave. That was a huge hit in the U.S. Camelot. I think it was, yeah. came out in 66 or 67, maybe, maybe 67. Yeah. He was, Lancelot well, uh,
2: a lot in, it was 67. Yeah.
3: 67. So yeah. Django was made 66. He was, he learned English while that film was being made. Okay. He would study English on the set of the movie and later when he dubbed his own, that was his own voice. Um, no, actually somebody else dubbed his own voice. I think in the original theatrical showings and, um, he later dubbed his own voice in his other westerns, okay, but uh, he he had not perfected it yet. But he like in um, the Mercenary, that's Franco Nero's voice speaking in English, okay. In oh, okay, Mercen- yeah. In Co- it's another late another 1970 Corbucci film. That's Franco Nero's voice. So he taught himself English, so he could be a, so he could be an American star as well as a European star, and he appeared in a number of American movies, but he, he appeared in mainly European movies, but he he was he could speak English or he could speak Italian perfectly, and um, in any case, when I first saw Django, it was another, somebody else dubbed him, I saw it when it was out on video, and I think, I, I'm not sure if it was cut or not, it didn't have the impact, until I saw a really good DVD of it with... Um, Totally on that. It's, it's a really powerful movie. And this guy is just, because <laughs> the main character is just going through all these trials and tribulations. He's being beaten, he's being tortured, he's being robbed, and he just has to fight off uh, the white patriarchy. This, Italian, this Spanish actor um, plays the villain, okay? Eduardo Vigarto, um plays the villain. He's a Spanish actor who played villains in a lot of uh, Italian and Spanish westerns and films. He plays like the villain who's like the this uh, wealthy white landowner who has like a private army who wear like red, red hoods over their head. They're like kind of like the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah. They, they like they like uh, torture and kill Mexicans. Um, a set of African Americans that kill Mexicans, okay? Yeah Americans, because it's supposed to take place in part of the US, southwestern US. And they they like they like hunt, They hunt them down alive and kill them. And his character is a real bastard. uh, Django wants to kill him and all of his private guys who are in this private army. And that's kind of what manages, he manages to do that only after a great deal of additional bloodshed torture. Great, great, great deal. Okay. Rivers of blood. Okay. Yeah. He's also, he's also got these Mexican banditos who are after him because he uses them to get money to you know to get his weapons and he rips them off and so they they capture him and they they mutilate his hands and they beat the shit out of him basically I hate to use that <laughs> yeah. kind of language but uh and just the beatings go on and on. it's very bloody he goes through all this and it's uh, just non violence and you know and it and like i said he just mows down he finally breaks and mows down a lot of people at the end yeah once again in our society, you know, he'd be considered like a serial killer, I guess.
2: Or, <laughs> I don't know. I know? thought he was a hero, but. <laughs> yeah.
3: Yeah. Back then, he was a hero. You know? yeah.
2: I mean, yeah. And one thing I, I think people should know about these films is that you've got Django, but then you've also got Ringo and you've got Sabata. And what ends right. up happening is they made like six, was it 27 sequels to Django? Right. None of which were actual sequels except no. for one in the 1980s. Right.
3: Yeah. he and came I, back. Be- yeah, now I've got that one on VHS. Once again, I got it as old tape. I don't even know if that's on DVD. It probably is by now. And yeah, he's 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 playing Django again, and he's back, and he's fighting another kind of fascistic type of uh, a guy who's got like a slave ship. Okay. Yeah. And he, he's like a slaver, and it's a similar story, and although it's not quite as good as Django, and. He, but it's it's 20 years later but it's it's we're seeing i think
2: okay. yeah yeah and I'm, I'm looking it up right now but my understanding is that they've got i mean he's coming up he was in um he's in one of the john wick movies and i believe that they're oh it doesn't list it here on imdb but they're supposed to be oh wait a minute if i click on that um hmm i thought i read that they were going to have another oh yeah Django lives is in production right now right. so he's making a th- quote-unquote third one
3: okay now who is who
2: is uh is that in italy or is that new? yeah well it says christian albert is directing oh john sales is the script writer um that could be good because john sales is really
3: okay. good yeah john sales excellent screenwriter he's a novelist he's a, he's directed some amazing films so yeah i mean if he's a if he's a if he's attached as a writer i would definitely see it yeah you know? yeah is, yeah. It, is, is that an american film
2: I don't know. I'm trying to find out. There's not a lot of information on here, and I think it might be in one of those ones in development hell because I've heard about it a while ago. Yeah, it doesn't even give you the production.
1: Uh... Right.
3: Because because there was another Django in production in like uh, development for years, but it didn't work out. Okay, right. I, I believe that Enzo Casolari also had some. Oh, he had he, he had another role that Nero, Franco Nero played was Kioma yes yep, Yama, yep. very good that's probably one of his best very yeah. violent western yeah that was made in 75 or 70 very violent he plays this guy he's tortured and then finally he gets back at all the bad guys and kills everybody very similar story to django Enzo z Custler wanted to make sequels to that for years but could never get to the financing
1: right. so that
3: was another famous very violent film about the bloody avenger at this, and at this time, Clint Eastwood was making films like The Outlaw Josie Wales, which are kind of very similar, I think, influenced by Django and uh, Kioma. I think Eastwood was very influenced by these films, was trying to make those these films in an American setting where he played the Avenger who overcome great odds and he kill all the bad guys at the end. So that film, I think, was very, one, I think, one of Eastwood's better films, very influenced by Django, very similar character. Very similar violence, very similar mood. You know, when you right.
2: agree. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I just looked it up real quick too. They um, uh, Django Lives is a United States production, and it's got its own Facebook page. But there's an article about how John Sales is writing the movie, and it's from 2015. So I have a feeling okay. this
3: thing's in development hell. Okay, so that's seven years. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, we, we think John Sales could get it made, but what you got to have is you got to have a. A, st- a big star attached to it to make the movies. Like, yeah. like writers and directors, even directors aren't, unless you're Quentin Tarantino now, right. because he's, he's, or David Lynch, okay? Um, D- David Lynch, by the way, is one of my favorite, or probably my favorite modern director. And I mean, everything he does is wonderful, okay? Wonder- yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, so that's, that there's somebody I do like, you know what I mean? Um, uh, and I think Martin Scorsese is another one, you know? But uh, you know, you, you know the, these these guys can make their own films and get them made. You got to have like a big star attached to a project nowadays to get it made. Right, so, right. And uh, probably a lot of these stars don't even know. I mean, ja- Tarantino made a Django Unchained in 2013 or 14.
2: Yeah, and Frank O'Neill had a guest uh, cameo in that.
3: If Frank Frank O'Neal in it, only it's a only it's a African American Django. Okay. Uh, with an African American plot, it's about an African American uh, gunslinger who's trying to, you know, uh, fight the slavery concept in America and yeah. you know free his uh, free his wife who's been enslaved by Leonardo DiCaprio, who's a slave owner. Okay, so it takes place in takes place in uh, basically pre-Civil War America, you know, and yeah. uh, pre, pre when slavery was still around. And so, yeah, but he changed the plot. He changed the setting. It's in America. The character of Django is in it because Frank uh, O'Neill is in it. He's wearing white gloves. And uh, he's like uh, very good to see him in it. But it's a whole different deal. But it's a similar type of story where you have the hero fighting very evil people and using his wits to destroy them.
2: Right, right.
3: So
2: <laughs> let's move on to The Great Silence here from 1968 because I know you're dying to talk about this movie.
1: Yes. C'è un uomo che fa tremare i cacciatori di taglie quando lo incontrano. Lo chiamano silenzio. Perché dopo che è passato lui, resta soltanto il silenzio e la morte.
0: La tua pistola difende le ingiustizie. Anche mio figlio era innocente. Vendicherai mio figlio
1: e salverai dalla morte tanti altri
0: di quella porta, ho freddo. Hai sentito?
1: <frappos> L'altro
0: ha sparato per legittima difesa. Forse è un buon sistema per uccidere, senza che la legge possa farci niente.
1: Vi ho chiesto di venire perché voglio che uccidiate. Si, si tratta di tigrevo. Ho <frappos> ucciso mio. Coligut, porco Marco suraglio! Stai bene lì al caldo, eh? Se vuoi che te l'ammazzi,
0: mettili gli uccanelli
1: sulla testa.
0: Non dovresti aver bisogno hai tutto l'interesse a ucciderlo. è un nemico
1: dei mountain. Un
0: giorno potreste incontrare uno più svelto di voi.
1: Sarà un giorno molto divertente. Voglio che silenzio venga qui. Se Riuscirà ad uccidermi. Voi tutti sarete sani.
2: It's basically, just to let people know the plot, it's a mute gunfighter defends a young widow and a group of outlaws against a gang of bounty hunters in the winter of 1898. Right. So. Yes.
3: Now, I hadn't seen that film. Like I said, it didn't play in America. I don't even, it was even hard to find on videotape back in the 80s and 90s. And then I saw it finally on DVD. about like 25 years ago, I started just getting it the DVD. And it's a great film, you know? It's like that. Hey, um, you
2: can't go wrong with Klaus Kinski in a supporting role. Right. You know,
3: well, Klaus Kinski plays the most <laughs> vicious villain of all time. You yeah, know? I mean, he's really a bad. You, you want to see? You, you want to kind of reach out and do something bad to him? You know, it's like yeah, because he's a horrible <laughs> character. He's a horrible villain who is a who's he's a bounty hunter. Now, by this time, by this time, when you're making these films, like the Clint Eastwood films, we're going into some history here. The Clint Eastwood Italian Westerns. Clint was a bounty hunter. in all these films the big Sergio Leone films. He's of Carol He's the bounty hunter. He kills people and collects them. Then he moves on to the other film, and kills more people. Lee Van Cleef's in the follow-up, you know, for a few dollars more. And then the good, the bad, and the ugly, when still a bounty hunter, he captures Tuco, Eli Wallach, who's a Mexican bandit, and they kind of get their bounty, and then they cheat the sheriff out of it, and they escape to do another kind of, you know, a scam. And Lee Van Cleef is like, Kind of like this union officer, who's kind of like uh, just out to kill everybody, you know. And right. uh, and so, the but in those Sergio Leone films, all classic films, though, the bounty hunters are the, are the protagonists, are the heroes. Now, what the Great Silence does, it turns over everything, changes everything about that. Complete paradigm shift. The bounty hunters are the the villains again. They're terrible people. They torture. They kidnap women. They kill uh, elderly people. They kill women. They kill children. They torture them. They they blackmail people. They tell people they're going to take them in to be tried, but they shoot them in the back at the last minute. They're they're really evil people, you know. And Kowalski yeah. and Klaus Kinski plays this very polite leader of all these bounty hunters. He'll like say, "Have a nice day," and then he'll kill you. you know? Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if you've seen the film, but oh yeah, yeah. But he's constantly—he goes out of his way to be polite. He says, "Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Um, uh, you know, I'm sorry. Oh, I hope you, I hope you didn't fall and hurt yourself." He's very—he's very polite, but he's a monster. That's yeah. was brilliant. That's was brilliant about his—he plays this very polite, nice guy that looks like a nice guy, but he's a kill—he's a cold-blooded killer. So great performance. He really makes the film because you got to have a—you got to have a strong villain, and the the, the, the protagonist Jean-Louis Trintignant very. Who just died recently, a very well-known, very respected European actor, didn't speak English, okay? When yeah. he made that film. So they, they have him, so he's like become a mute. The bounty hunters cut his throat as a child when they were killing his family, and they made him into a mute. So they did that on purpose, uh, made him a mute in the screenplay because the only actors they could get were actors who didn't speak English, okay? At that time, okay? Because Clint Eastwood was no longer making films in Europe. He came back to appear in like Dirty Harry type films. Right. But, in, or Hang Him High. And that film was made in 68. And so the guy didn't speak English, the actor, so they made him into a mute. And that's what makes the film work. He, he plays a mute. He doesn't have any dialogue. And he he just stands up for what's right. He kills the bounty hunters. And he's a crack shot. He's kind of a mythic figure, you know, and... Uh, it's great to see these two pole opposites like fight it out through the entire film. I'm not going to give away the ending, but they they just kind of fight it out till the bitter end. you know?
2: And the and thing that makes it great, like you mentioned, it's the fact that he doesn't talk. I mean, I almost liken right. it to the fact that the the phony shark in Jaws didn't work, so it actually made the movie better because you don't see the the shark really until the end. Right,
3: right, and that's what's and, good. and that's that that's what's good about that's what that's what's good about Jaws that they. They couldn't show it because it looked just too fake, right? And then and when you finally do when you finally do see, you just see parts of it, and you say, "Oh my god, it, it, it's it's huge!" You know what I mean?
2: Rather than have um, what's his name, Jean-Louis Trintignant, uh, speaking, trying to speak broken English or doing like a Bela Lugosi and phonetically pronouncing everything, right. they have him not speak through the whole movie, and his all his acting is in his, his um, you know, his facial expressions and his mannerisms, and I love that about this movie.
3: Yeah, that, that, that's what's so great about it, and you never know what he's going to do next, you know. And he's he's, he's got he's got that Mauser pistol, that, that that gun he's got was yeah, it's, it's called a seven seven point three three Mauser, I believe. Yeah, it wouldn't handle that gun was an actually historically correct. I that was that was only came out a few years in the late eighteen nineties, a few years before the action of the film. So that was the kind of gun that somebody like a bounty hunter or a sheriff would have. You know what I mean? Yeah, it, it, it's a very quick. It's, it's got a high it's got like a it can hold a lot of ammunition more than a six shooter and it's got a very r- rapid you you know you know, it, it, you know it's, it's basically you it can hold a full metal jacket and it's got like a high rate of fire okay right you can sh- you can shoot like 10 or 12 bullets like in two or three seconds oh yeah yeah and, and that's what he does with the film okay yeah <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and the people he shoots are people you really want to see get shot you know yeah the they're, they're, they're real bastards who are doing terrible things to people, okay? Yeah.
2: One of these days, I want to cover this movie in, in greater detail over on The East Meets the West, so we'll have to have you on for that one.
3: Well, I would love to be on it. Well, I've, I, and I've counted, and I've done some research on it, there, there are 80-something people, 80-something kills in the movie, okay? Wow. And, and the film is a 100-minute film, so that's like, that's like you know, that's like, that's like, that's like about a person a minute right. who gets killed in the film, you know what I mean? Think yeah. about it. It's like a hundred something, hundred two, hundred and. And, change and is that minute. more than Django? Yeah, I think Django actually more people get killed. Okay. Oh okay. But, but 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 the in the great in this great sounds the the way they get killed is bloodier. That's actually bloodier than Django. Yeah. And, yeah. And in this, in in the scenes, the way they're staged and done are just kind of leave you kind of breathless. It's kind of very it's staged in a very. Uh, Fear of cruelty type ma- manner. Like, that's the only thing I can. Or sadistic manner. These people are sadists, you know. And he has to resort to their way of life and killing to to kill them first, you know, because they're they're the kind of people who shouldn't. <laughs> they're the kind of people who are never going to get justice done, you, you know, and, and that's the way you feel about them. You don't really. You're not sad when he's when they're being killed. You feel like, hey, good, good.
2: <laughs> right. Right. Um, it is on a couple of streaming services. It's on something called Hoopla. I don't, I don't know if that's free or not, or a Film Movement. Um, but you can also get it for like three bucks on Amazon and YouTube. So right. I definitely recommend people check out The Great Silence. It's just such a great right.
3: movie. Yeah. If you, if you want to come away from this movie recommendation, that's a great movie. Once again, the acting is superb. The script is superb. The it was in this film we were talking about where these Italian westerns were filmed in Spain like Django was filmed in Spain and The yeah. Mercenary was filmed in Spain where it's dusty and hot and dusty. This was all filmed in northern Italy, in Cortina, which is like in the mountains where it's snowing all the time and the interiors are filmed in Rome. None of this was filmed in Spain. So it has a totally different look. And the first thing you see in the movie is just the screen is whited out and you see him, um, the silence, the character of Silence, just riding a horse as a speck coming out of the Snowstorm, you know, yeah, and it's very, very effective opening shot, you know, and um, he's like uh, death incarnate, you know, but you know, he's like the good death, and then there's the bad death, who's Kinski, you know, right, right, <laughs> and, 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 and that's what you're seeing play out through the film. It's got a great score by Ennio Morricone, yeah, okay, very dramatic score, okay, um, which is really very gripping score, great script, great score, great photography, great location, oh, great. Yeah great film it's probably one of my it's probably uh, i think once upon a time in a western and, and good bad and, Ugly and The and great sound those, those are probably my sweet favorite italian westerns yeah and I, thank god i have them all on you know very nice dvds and blu-rays you know? oh absolutely, absolutely. And, and, and and those are the i mean if it, you know i mean there was a time i was i was running for an italian western magazine and I saw a lot of Italian Westerns, after a while, I kind of got sick of them and said, okay, I don't want to see any more Italian Westerns. Right. But those are, those are three I can watch over and over again, and you can enjoy them each time. They're they're just good movies. Yeah,
2: yeah, absolutely. So let's move on. Our next and fin- final film that we're going to talk about today is called The Mercenary from 1968, also starring uh, Franco Nero, and it's also got Jack Palance in it, too.
3: Right.
0: He sells death to the highest bidder. He'll sell your life for what he thinks it's worth. He is the mercenary. If you're not ready to buy, be ready to die. the rest. Franco Nero, Tony Musante, Jack Balance, Giovanna Raleigh. The mercenary, the sun at his back, a gun at his side, a town at his mercy.
3: Now, that was made, I believe, right after the Great Silence. And once again, Corbucci went back to Spain, and that was filmed mainly, you know, the rain in Spain. mainly on the plains type deal. You know, it's like that was filmed in the hot deserts of Spain, El Maria, Spain, which is in southern Spain. And you got like um, it's it all takes place in these desert locations. The architecture looks Spanish. It looks like it looks like Mexico. And it takes place though in the early twentieth century because there's a biplane in it, and it takes place during the Mexican Revolution. Right,
2: which I which believe had, went from 1910 to 1920.
3: Right, so it takes place sometime after 1910. Yeah. I mean that's when that's when um, Sam Peckinpah's The Wild Bunch, which is probably my, which is another great Western, oh, <laughs> great yeah. great film. Um, that all takes place during World War One during, you know, they say they say in the film that yeah they have planes over there in that war in Europe now. So that, that takes place in, I think takes place like in 1914, 1915, where they had cars in there, yep. they have planes, they have automatic weapons, you know, they have a lot, a lot more efficient ways of killing people in that film. And in that film, that's the most violent Western ever made, probably. That, that, that does, that goes way beyond Corbucci, you know. And I, th- I think the Wild Bunch was very much influenced by Corbucci's Django and the Great Silence, you know. Yeah. It has that same feeling of, you know, like, uh, you know, uh, good versus evil and just a few people having to, you know, deal with like overwhelming force, you know?
2: Yeah. I will say this though, the, um, We covered this, like I said, on um, The East Meets the West, and we also, um, at a later point, covered this um, companion film to this. It's not really a sequel. It's called The Companeros. Right. um, Another Corbucci film. I liked The Companeros better. I felt like the pacing in this movie was really slow. Right. And... Uh, Franco Nero's character, I, he he plays uh, Sergey Kowalski, who's also called, referred to as the Pole because he's Polish. The Polak,
3: right? We, we don't want to say any ethnic slur, so okay. Oh but, well, whatever. That's what but, they call but, him in but, the movie. So, but they call. See that? I don't even know if that would be in a movie today because of that. Right. You know. You know. I know a lot of Polish people, really nice people. I don't. You don't want, You don't want to call him Polak you know what I mean? <laughs> but, but, No, but, but the but, point that people but, have. But to. Those, those characters would do it in that film. So Kowalski is the mercenary. He's the main character. Right. And, and people
2: also, though, have to not get upset about old movies. You have to take them yes, in the context right. of when they were made. That's what right. they called him in this film. I'm not right. using it as a racial slur. Right. That was his character's name. Right.
3: I'm <laughs> just saying that somebody t- today, if that was shown, I'm sure there's some audience who would think it was a racial slur. Right, you know? right.
2: Yeah, so I just felt like the pacing was too slow in this one. I didn't care about Franco's Nero's character that much. Um, right. Jack Palance was great. Um, but it's I, I did actually end up watching it twice, and I liked it better on the second viewing. Um, but I I just felt like, and, and both of them are in the Campaneros. I felt like Campaneros was a superior film. I mean, would you? What do you think of that opinion? Yeah,
3: no, I, I kind of agree with you. Okay, because uh, I was on a spaghetti western board years ago on, on the internet before Facebook, where we t- I was running for a magazine, and one of the people there, Tom Betts, kind of the Tom Betts is kind of the uh, authority on spaghetti westerns, American authority on spaghetti westerns. This guy is like a brilliant. He knows he knows he knows it all. He he ran the board. He was the sheriff of the board. And but everybody would be talking on this on this on this internet board about, you know, how The Mercenary was a great film, but Campaneros wasn't as good. I was exactly the opposite. I thought Campaneros, which was made in 1970, a year or two later, was a much better film. It, it was the same it was almost the same film. It has the same story about franco nero plays like a mercenary who's selling weapons and then there's thomas Milian is in that yeah he plays who plays like a mexican the kind of ignorant mexican bandit who's like uh depends on him to get the weapons and at the end he kind of wins him over to get the mercenary in other words is is just selling weapons um, but he at the end he he kind of joins their cause you know because he sees the Mexican government is corrupt and needs to be overthrown. You know? And they're so, also uh,
2: coming over the hill and about to kill him, so he joins the revolution.
3: <laughs> right, and, and at the end, you don't see what, it's kind of an open ending, but, yeah, you know, all, all the characters who you really kind of get attached to, like Thomas Millian, the bandit, yeah. who's kind of like an interesting, kind of almost lovable character, you know, kind of like a, and then Franco Nero, um, they're all going to get killed at the end, but you don't see it, you know? Yeah. And so it, it, it's, yeah, I think it's a much better take on the same topic. I think it was a much better script. It was be- it seemed like it was more thought out. And and there was some comedy in it, some funny stuff, but it didn't go on for, it didn't go on for a long time, you know? Mm. It didn't, I thought the comedy and the mercenary clashed with the serious stuff, and it kind of went, it was kind of went on for too long, you
2: know? Right, right.
3: And it, uh, so, so I thought the Companeros was a better film, same characters, same story, same location, Mexican Revolution at that time. But I think it was a little bit better done. And uh, I thought the music was a little, I thought the, the music was better to I think it was any Morricone again. Yep. But in the, in, uh, the Mercenaries, kind of like that, you know, that, that familiar Mexican music, like that uh, Mexican music you hear like a carnival's and, and whistling. And I didn't like the music as much. I, th- I think Morricone's score was, or it was either Morricone or Bruno Nicolai. The score for Campaneros was better the photography was better. The direction was better. Is, is and
2: that Well, I was just going to say, is this the one where there was a, a fist fight that breaks out and all of a sudden a parade comes marching through? Or, or am I thinking of a different movie?
3: I, I, you know, I don't know. That I haven't seen... I haven't seen Campaneros in a long time. I've got that in the Spaghetti Western box set released by Blue Underground, which I highly recommend, which has Django. Um, this it has Django. It has Campaneros. And it has... Um, uh, Django Kill with Thomas Million, which is not a real Django film, but right. it's kind of one of the, it's kind of one of the better, you know, um, unofficial Django films. And it's got the Menage on it, the Man Called Blade. Okay, the, the four pretty good Spuddy Westerns. But I haven't I haven't seen it like in fifteen or twenty years. Okay, but I remember it being I remember liking it a lot. And then when I finally saw the Mercenary years later, I said, "No, nah, this is this is kind of the same story, but it's not as gripping or as well done or as well." As well acted, and Jack Palance plays Curly. He's got curly hair. Yeah, (laughs)
1: he
3: he plays kind of like a cliched, you know, villain. And I've seen Jack Palance play that type of role in a lot of different films. I believe, I believe Jack Palance is also in Compañeros, isn't he?
2: Yes. Yep. He's in that one. And it's funny because in the movie City Slickers, he's also called Curly in that movie.
3: Oh, really? Okay, right. He 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 really won deserved the Academy Award he won for that. I'll tell you that. Yeah. Because he was he was really a good character actor and villain in many many films
2: no he's he's one of those actors would you say he was sort of the exception to the rule because we talked about a lot of these guys that the career started to tank over here and they went over and became stars in europe for a while but his career was going pretty good he went over there and became you know worked quite a bit and then came back here like there was no break i don't yeah I don't you're think right. in his career. You're right
3: because he came back over here and he still was in a lot of he, he was still he, he still got lots of prominent roles in successful american films yes he yeah. did he didn't he got he, he right up until like right right up until city slickers That that was made in the 1990s so that was like 25 years later he was still getting important character roles villain roles important roles and he won the academy award yeah <laughs> the best, yeah. Best supporting and
2: he, he got up and did one-handed push-ups and the man yeah, i remember the, the man had he, only he, one lung <laughs>
3: Right, right. He had one lung. He had black lung disease because he was in, he worked in the mines. And like Charles Bronson, he worked in the mines when he was a kid of Pennsylvania. You know? Oh, yeah. And he was um. also, he used to do push ups on a set of his films. I've talked to some people who worked on films in, in Europe, and they said that he used to do that between takes, you know? Yeah. He used to like do push ups to intimidate people or say, show that he was still, you know, a tough guy. And this was back in the late 60s, okay? I mean, he had already been a, in films for 20 years, he'd been in films throughout the 1950s. I mean, remember Shane? Yep. Like, yep. The, 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 the killer in that. He's, I mean, that's what that's one of the, that that might be his greatest villain role because he's got the black glove he puts on, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, I mean, he he already had that villain role mastered in Shane back in the early 50s, you know? Oh, yeah. Uh, he's he's great in that, you know? He's also in Attack, you know? You know, the, the war movie, great in that. he's Oh, so right, many, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So many great movies he appeared in the U.S. and film a lot of film noir type movies he was in, yeah. And um, so yeah, he came back and he still got roles. That's so what to say throughout the 1970s. He had he played like in um, horror movies, he was in comedies, he was in, still played villains, and then like I said, in City Slickers, he got the Academy Award for Best Supporting Act, and very much deserved. Role. But I, I just watched on um I get I, I see a lot of older. European films, too, on uh, some of these YouTube channels or some channels. I just watched an old film of his made in the 1960s called, uh, uh, it's called Craze. He plays an antique dealer, crazy antique dealer who's killing people because he worships his African god, God, okay? and it's, it's really a neat little movie, and he plays a total villain in a killer, craze killer, But you really believe him. And that was made, like, I think, in 1969. No, no, that was made in the mid-70s. That was made in 73 or 74. And he's excellent playing this kind of crazy antique dealer. It it was filmed in London.
2: Oh, yeah, 74.
3: 74. He's great in it. It, It's on, I think it's on YouTube and some other channels.
2: Oh, it's on Tubi.
3: Tubi, yeah. Yeah. That's where I watch it. (laughs) If you haven't seen it, if you haven't seen it, watch it. You'll love it. I so gotta like, add I'm, this to
2: my list because the, the the plot is a nutty antiques dealer starts to sacrifice women to an African idol. <laughs> that's <laughs> awesome.
3: And that's the whole plot. That's all The whole film takes place in this antique shop and he like he like talks to the idol, you know. He like it looks us looks like one of these tiki type gods. He like he's like saying, Yes, master, I will go out and kill them. And but he he, he goes out and picks up women in clubs, you know what I mean? And then yeah. they'll like take them off for a date, then they'll go back to his apartment. And he'll kill him, you know. And then he'll like throw the body body in the river, the Thames River, or in a swamp in England somewhere, you know. Oh, Freddie
2: Francis directed it. Wow. Yeah,
3: Freddie Francis, one of my favorite kind of European horror directors. Yeah. Great job of directing too. He did. It's very taut. It's it's got very. It's all filmed like the way it's filmed is very interesting. It's all film with these point of view shots where you just see him over the over the victims, you know. Yeah. He doesn't really. He doesn't really. Get that bloody, but it's very well done. And and Jack Palance is in another one of Freddie Francis's horror film. It's called Torture Garden. That's
2: yes. I think I it have that on DVD.
3: Written by Robert Block, yep. who wrote who wrote Psycho. He wrote, the, he wrote the book, The Psycho, the movie Psycho was based on. Yeah. Robert Block was a very prolific screenwriter and novelist uh, with horror and science fiction. He wrote scripts for the Twilight Zone and for Night Gallery. And he wrote, he wrote this other Freddie Francis film called Torture Garden. And Jack, it's like five horror stories, short stories. And Jack Pounce is in the last one. And he plays a collector of Edgar Allan Poe memorabilia. Right. Kind of, his uh, kind of goal is to uh, make Edgar Allan Poe rise from the dead. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's a really good, it's only less like 20 minutes, A really good 20 minutes short horror story but it's excellent jack palance is just superb because you can see you can see he's really unhinged he's like it's like it's kind of like a, a commentary on people who collect things you know who can go crazy right by just wanting to collect things and they want to they want to have the best collection there is you know
2: Oh yeah, I remember when I was a kid. My mother and I would stay up late on Fridays and Saturdays and watch the scary movies, and that was one of them. I never forgot that film, especially with Burgess Meredith sort of being the, the right. wraparound host for the film. Right you
3: know? now, and Burgess Meredith is great. It's got a really good cast too. And Burgess Meredith, another excellent American character yep. actor, Peter Cushing. Jack, and, and yeah, Jack Palance is in it. Peter Cushing's in it. Yep. it's got a great cast. You know, it's um, and uh, so yeah, Palance. He, he was good in those things. Still getting roles in Europe, came back and got roles in America. Plus, he had—he was on—he te- had television series in the seventies and eighties. He had like—I um, can't remember—Ripley's Believe It or Not. Yes, yep. It. He was the host of that. So he was—he he remained a very successful actor right up until his his death. He would so, always yeah, his,
2: do the story, and he'd go, "Believe it or not." Or not, right?
3: <laughs> That's a very good Jack Palance. Oh, thank you. <laughs> imitation, by the way, Rigo very excellent, but yeah, he was, he managed to go over and appear in these films, including Sergio Corbucci films, Hammer films, Freddie Francis films, um, horror films over there, uh, Westerns over there. He appeared in Short and Sandal films. He played Genghis Khan, I believe, in one film, yep. and then, and then he, he played in the, the Mongols, is another film that was made over there, and, uh, He's very good as that, as, and you really you really believe him as that type of character. Right. His face looks like that type of, you know, Mongol-type character. They, they made him up with a Fu Manchu mustache. Right. So, yeah, his career didn't tank after that. His career, he had a long career, successful career. Right,
2: right. So I had a question for you, and this is, we're, we're kind of off on a tangent a little bit here. We'll bring it back in soon. But um, would you say that Freddie Francis is to Terrence Fisher... As Sergio Corbucci is to Sergio Leone.
3: Yeah, that's a very good comparison. I definitely think so, right? Like, like Sergio Leone. Yeah, like, like one's kind of like the classicist, and one's kind of like the modernist. I guess you would say, you know? Yeah. It, it's 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 like one guy's kind of like Michelangelo, and the other guy's kind of like a very good sculptor of the same era who you don't know as well, but still did good stuff, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like, like, like everybody can't be the great. You know, everybody can't be the greatest director who ever lived. You know what I mean? Right, and right. Yeah, that's a very good comparison. That's very good. And Freddie Francis made a lot of good films. He made Tales from the Crypt, another good anthology. Tales of Witness Madness is another favorite. Yep. On. He made a whole series of these anthology films. Yeah. And he made um, The Creeping Flesh, which is very good, too. Which yep. is a, he was a cinematographer also. He did the camera work for The Innocents, classic British horror film. And then oh, he right. became a, then he became a cinematographer who worked with David Lynch. He was a cinematographer on The Elephant Man.
2: I did not know that. That's amazing.
3: Yeah. Freddie Francis, he did the black and white cinematography in the, in the 1980s he, he, his directing career had kind of slowed down and he wanted he actually wanted to get back into camera work because I guess he liked doing that more because he didn't have so much responsibility, you know right he just right. He just, he just he just liked doing kind of you know neat camera work. So he became David Lynch's cameraman for uh, the Elephant Man. That's one of the... That's, the black and white cinematography is just great in that.
2: Yeah, yeah. That's and, amazing.
3: And Freddie Francis won two Academy Awards for Best Cinematographer. One one was for um, a British film, older British film camera, which I think it was a D.H. Lawrence film. And the second one was for Glory, the American Civil War film in the 1980s. Oh, yeah, so with
2: he, Matthew Broderick and uh, Denzel Washington.
3: Right, that was shot by Freddie Francis when he... Came to America and became, it was really a second career he had as a cinematographer after he kind of retired from directing. He won a second Academy Award for that. And that's, that's a great looking film.
2: That's insane. And
3: uh, it's, it's a good, I mean, his cinemat he was a superb cinematographer as yeah. well as director. He also photographed David Lynch's Dune, which which I thought was very good. A lot of people didn't like it. I thought it was, yeah, I I thought it was really good. Yeah, I thought it was really good. I'd like to get the uncut version. I didn't see the new one because I liked the old one so much. But in any case, Freddie Francis was a cinematographer on several David Lynch films.
2: Wow, I did not know that. That's incredible.
3: So that's another story to go in. But in any (laughs) case, yeah, going back to the Corbucci, yes, I would agree that um, The Mercenary is, is kind of worth seeing maybe once. For me, it had like some of the comedy that I didn't get into that much. I thought it was kind of stupid slapstick. And also, it, it didn't really, it wasn't as well-developed as a story or as a realistic depiction, I think, of the revolution, what was happening down there with the Mexicans and the Americans and the Europeans getting involved. I think Campaneros was much better written and cast and developed. And also, Thomas Millian, who's a great great spaghetti Western character actor another yes, movie, was, yeah. was, better, was better than the guy, Tony Musante, who was in, he was a better actor and more he was a real, he was a real, he was from Cuba, but he was a real Latino type guy, whereas the guy who was a um, mercenary was just like a, I think he was an Italian-American. He wasn't really a right. Mexican. Right. He didn't really, he wasn't as convincing as the Mexican bandit. Yeah, yeah. So I totally agree with you. We're both on the same page. Campaneros is the best version of that same story. Uh, it was a better film about the revolution. I would recommend that over in mercenary and that was really sergio corbucci's last for me good film now after that just to wrap up he spent the rest of his he, he made a few more westerns between 1964 and 1975 he ended up making 13 westerns okay yeah um and two or three of them two or three of them were great i would say uh the ones to see out of the great silence Django. um both excellent westerns, Campaneros, and Minnesota Clay was a very good one. Um, he made three. He made he made two or three really top-notch ones. So um, out of thirteen, he made other Italian westerns which weren't quite as good. He made uh, he got into making a lot of comedies. He made several films with Terrence Hill yeah. comedies that weren't even westerns. He made a film with Terrence Hill and Ernest Borgnine in nineteen eighty called Super Fuzz. Okay, yeah, which was a, a cop comedy. That was why, that was directed by it. I didn't even realize, by that time I knew who Sergio Sergio Cabucci was. Right. And I remember seeing ads for it in Variety, and thinking, what the hell is he doing doing direct this type of film? But it, <laughs> it was a it was a Terrence Hill Ernest Borden comedy. And um, I, I guess I, I remember reading some reviews where it wasn't that good. And then he made even more comedies and um, some musicals. And that was the end of his career. He spent the last twenty years of his life. Uh, making kind of comedies and musicals and lighthearted films,
1: <laughs> right? Right.
3: They were more. They were more easygoing. E- you know, uh, more mainstream. They were popular in Italy and They were more mainstream type films. Right. They weren't these right. violent. They weren't these violent, bleak westerns with a, maybe a message or a twist to them. Right. So that was kind of the end of his career.
2: Right. <laughs> so, of, of the five films we talked about today, three of which were Westerns, um, one was a, kind of a Euro Spy, and one was a Peplum film. Of these five, Robert, if you had to choose, if you were forced to pick one, would there be one that would be your favorite?
3: Yeah, The, the, the Great Silence, obviously.
2: Yeah. And, ja- and
3: then Django, number two, a close second. Yeah, the, the, like I said, he made a lot of films, like I said, before he became... Before he, before he became... Well known with the sword and sandal films, with the Goliath films, and and, and and the westerns. And in the fifties, he made a lot of. He, I've seen several of those films. are They're kind of like comedies or or love to love stories. They're, they're more family oriented films. Some musicals. And his later films were just more musicals, more comedies. He he was really hot and big between nineteen sixty and nineteen seventy. That's when he. That was his great decade, I think. Right, right,
2: yeah, and I agree. I absolutely agree with your assessment. Great Silence is is awesome. Django is just almost on the same tier. Um, I think I've seen Django far more than I've seen The Great Silence. I've only seen that once or twice. So I have to watch that again. Right, um, that's
3: worth having. That's actually worth having a Blu-ray if they have. I, I guess they released a new Blu-ray of it, you know. And uh, I mean, that's that's a film which I would actually double dip for, you know
2: oh yeah yeah absolutely
3: and, uh, and th- there was another corbucci film i wanted to mention before we sign off here um that uh he was a, a corbucci Sergio corbucci died at the age of 63 so he was he was fairly young when he died too made 60 but he made managed to make 63 63 films okay right. and a- like um in like you know in the 1950s 60s 70s and 80s so he, he was a busy director okay and uh um he managed to work. There was another one called, um, there's another one called The Specialists, another Italian Western, which I haven't seen, okay? I don't know if you saw that one, but I haven't seen it. Can't comment on it. There's there's another one I wanted to recommend, actually called The Hellbenders, with Joseph Cotton's in it. Oh, yeah. It takes, it takes place after the Civil War, and Joseph Cotton and his family are kind of like outcasts in their. They have like this, and they're riding around trying to avoid being arrested by, by the. Um, I think they're Confederates. They're they're trying to. The Union Army wants them arrested for collaborating, with the, you know, with the, um, Confederate. It's it's a it's a very well written, very well acted film. Joseph Cotton's very good. That's a good one too. Okay, and um, not 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 really essential, but it's it's on, it's, it's on YouTube. It's worth watching. Now, there's another one we even haven't mentioned. Burt Reynolds' only Italian western was directed by Sergio Corbucci, also in 1966. Oh yeah, Burt Reynolds went there and made Navajo Joe. That's okay? right. Yeah, where, where and I've seen that film. Um, it's got a lot of action in it. Burt Reynolds kind of plays a very brooding Native American who um, is fighting off the corrupt, uh, corrupt Indian agents, or you know, they call them the, the, they're American officials who are supposed to help the Indians, but they're actually stealing from. They're supposed to help the Native Americans, but they're actually stealing from them. Okay. Right, right. He's fighting. He's he's fighting uh, bandits and he's fighting Indian officials, U.S. Indian officials, who have hurt Native American people. So he's playing a very, a very, you know, morally upright person, and he's. You can tell he's kind of uncomfortable in the role. Okay, he's got like this. He's got like this wig on. This to make him look more Native American. <laughs> and his performance reminds me a lot of Marlon Brando's performance. Some of Marlon Brando, He's, he's very brooding. Yeah. He, stands, he stands like Marlon if you, if you ever watch that film, think about Marlon Brando. I guess he was very influenced by Marlon Brando at that time. But he's he's good. At it. It's a good film. He's good in it. That's kind of a, what we're seeing as kind of an, an oddity, okay? Yeah. If you, want to see, if you want to see Burt Reynolds in an Italian western, you might as well see it directed by Sergio Corbucci that's kind of worth watching.
2: That's
3: yeah. uh, oh, on right my we, list. Yeah. Th- that's also a lot of, a lot of Corbucci's films are on, um, online.
2: Uh, yeah, right, right. Yeah. So yeah, definitely folks, you should check these out. So Robert, this was an awesome episode. It was very fun and I'm looking forward to doing future ones. Uh, can you tell the listeners where to find you online?
3: You can find me online. Um, I'm on Facebook and, uh, I have a private account. If you want to send me a, a you know, a friend request, I'll see how, you know, I'll see if I can add you. And I'm also I have a blog spot. I have a blog on deals with, pretty much exclusive with Jess Franco, but we also talk about Jess Franco films. We talk about European horror and some other films. It's called I'm in a Jess Franco state of mind. It's an award winning blog. I've had it online for like uh, almost twenty years now. Okay. It's won a accredited blogger award, and it's at www. robertmonell. dot blogspot. com. I also have a uh, a, a website called Cinema Drome, Cinema Drome like Videodrome. It's on uh, um
1: I'll
3: have like a, I'll have in the next show. I'll have like a a new link for that, which I'll give out. And that's like an international movie website where we have discussions about movies. Where I have a lot of reviews up there. I have interviews up there. A lot of information about a lot of different films: Italian, American, uh, Asian films. So I'll I'll have a. a, And I have a new. uh, I have a new link for that, which I'll give out. I'll uh, announce in our future commentaries, our future. I'm sorry, our future podcast. (laughs) I also do commentaries for Mondo Macabro. Really, really, really fine company. They started out in England. They have Mondo Macabro in the U.S. And they released really, really fine, fully restored editions of Blu-ray. Uh, a lot of Euro cult stuff, a lot of Asian cult stuff, of just international cult films. Uh, I was also recommend Severin Films, a very good company. Uh, Severin Films, and I've I've worked for them before, doing commentaries and uh, other things, and and video extras. They also release release a lot of cult films. They release a lot of Jess Franco films. They release a lot of European films, some some Asian films, some American cult filmmakers. Box sets. They do a lot of bundle box sets now. Um, the, so most of the most of the stuff I review or work I get now and working on. DVDs or Blu-ray, mostly Blu-ray stuff, is with those two companies, both of, both, of, both of whom I've worked with over the years. And I just wanted to mention them. I'd also like to thank, for how Paul Vineyard, uh, please make sure this stays at the end here, uh, <laughs> who, help, who helped me out by, um, by giving me some information about the dubber that Sergio Carbucci was dubbed by this, by this one dubber, Anthony LaPena, an American who went to Europe and dubbed all these actors, he dubbed Sergio Corbucci in a documentary which Sergio Corbucci appeared in, okay? So that's that's his voice. So He recently told me about Sergio Corbucci being dubbed by this guy whose son now works in Italy in dubbing. Wow, that's awesome. Right. So that's Paul Vineyard. He's, he's on our our website sometimes. He's a good friend. Um, he also knows a lot about cult movies. So i also like to thank him. And uh, and once again, it was a pleasure being with you to being here with you tonight. I hope we can do this again soon.
2: Excellent, excellent. We definitely right. will. And folks, you can find me on havenpodcasts.com. And if you want to send your feedback, tell us um, what you thought about the episode. Maybe give us some suggestions for cult films or anything. Um, comment on what we've talked about. You can send that to havenpodcasts at gmail.com. And if you could put Cult Movie Lounge in the subject... Um, I have created a Facebook page for it, but I can't give the address out yet. And I'm, Bob, I meant to tell you this off mic. I accidentally wrote the cult lounge, and Facebook wouldn't let me change it. And then I went to do it again, like, because I said, oh, you got to wait seven days. So I went to do it again the other day, and it goes, oh, well, that, that's not allowed. You can't name it that. I, okay. I, I can't add the word movie in. I mean, are you kidding me? It. I even created, so it's like facebook.com slash. Cult Movie Lounge. <laughs> so we'll figure that out, folks. Um, don't forget to join us again for the next episode, and um, we look forward to talking to you again. Take care.
3: Bye bye.